Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Even in famous UFO cases, how many people witness the phenomenon but never report it? How do you find those witnesses decades later? Could the testimony change the nature of the case? Welcome to the 1022nd edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you from WOON AM/FM radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live and on YouTube. Well, that was Mark D'Antonio sitting in for Ben via Skype today, and I'm Tim Swartz, here to help things along. Paul's with us, too, coming in via Skype. Well, hello, everybody. Hey there, Paul. Hey, Paul. So uh, today, Paul, and I know you're excited about this, we bring you an old friend on a much-expanded question, okay? A renowned UFO researcher, lecturer, and author, Dr. Irina Scott, is with us. She's received her Ph.D. from the University of Missouri, did postdoctoral research at Cornell University, and has had a professorship at Bonaventure University. She worked for the Defense Intelligence Agency doing work in satellite photography, and Dr. Scott has also worked as a physical scientist and cartographer in the Aerospace Center at Battelle Memorial uh, Institute. Now, among many other things, she has served on the Mutual UFO Network's Board of Directors and was a founding member of the Mid-Ohio Research Associates. Her publications include many books and works in peer-reviewed scientific journals, magazines, and newspapers, and she appears widely in the media all over the place. Dr. Scott has written these books that include, well, one of them with a famous British researcher known as Philip Mantle that many of you have heard about as well, and that is the subject of today's discussion, and it's Beyond Reasonable Doubt. Now, listeners may call in at 401 1240 or email Paul at BehindTheParanormal.com. Arita Scott, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Well, thank you very much for having me. I'm very honored to be here and with these very famous people. Well, that's wonderful that you're here with us. I'm glad that you came. I was talking to you before the show. I, I remember... Uh, you and I spoke at Roswell one year at the conference there, and that was really fun. So that was a, a fun time. Uh, we only were passing in this what passes as the Roswell Airport, a tiny little building, but that was fantastic. Um, but I'm interested in the book. I want to hear a lot more about this. I mean, I have many questions about you know the witnesses in Pascagoula. Have there been any other abductions? I mean, I want to know it all, Arena. So just just tell us everything. <laughs> well, this uh, was a close encounter and an abduction, and it was unique in quite a few ways. For one thing, uh, a lot of abductions take place with, like, one person off in the boondocks where nobody, there's no witnesses or nothing at all, and it's hard to document. We've called this the best documented abduction or um, close encounter that's been done. And although it was 1973, it also might have been the best investigated. Wow. Um, 
it it started out with two people that had no interest at all in UFOs. One of I talked to the son of one. He said he'd ask his father once if UFOs existed, and his father said no. And so he had things to find out. But anyway, they had finished their day of work, and they were down in, it was 1973, October the 11th, in Pascagoula, Mississippi. Pascagoula is named after the Pascagoula River, which is a big river, and it goes into the Gulf. And there's lots of um, water around there. And so what they do when there's water is fish. And so they had finished their day of work, and they were going fishing. So they, um, the older man was Charles Hickson. He was in his 40s, and he had been in the military and had a lot of experience in life. The other one was a young teenager, um, Kelvin Parker, 18, and he was just starting out. He was just engaged, and he was planning his life ahead and all that. And so um, they were in a car and they decided to go fishing and got the tackle and everything and went to one place and it wasn't too great and they decided to go to another place. And um, Kelvin had a new car and he was nervous about his car. He didn't want to mess it up or anything. So they found this one place and there was a big no trespassing sign and they had to walk through weeds and debris and stuff. And they got out on this pier. And Kelvin was nervous about his car. And so anyway, they began to fish. And they saw this blue light. And it kind of reminded them of police lights. And Kelvin said, well, if they go to jail, that Charles can go to jail because that was his idea. And so... It turned out it was much, much, much worse than the police because this uh, object came and it was kind of levitating. It didn't land. It stayed a little bit above the ground. It, they weren't too real sure about what it looked like because it was real bright and they couldn't see much. But there was it was like about 30 feet long, had this real bright light. And then uh, real soon afterwards it seemed to open up some way and a lot of bright lights shined out and these three things came out. Well, you'd think even though with the debris that they'd run, but they couldn't because two grabbed Charles, one grabbed Calvin and just instantly they were paralyzed. They couldn't move. All could, they could move with just their eyes, which was kind of a strange type of paralysis back in then, that day. And, um, then these things um, kind of levitated them into the object. They didn't walk. They just went in the object. And they were separated into two rooms, and both of them had real bright light. Um, Charles said that something, he couldn't see much of anything due to the bright light, but like something like an eye came out, and it looked like it looked like him, and then it moved around him like it was scanning him, and then it moved back. Kelvin also had this thing come out, and he said it looked like a deck of cards, and today you'd say it looked like an iPhone or something, and it moved around him, and um, then went back. 
And that's all they could see in the room. The room was just bright light. And they didn't know where the light was coming from. They thought they were in the in the object maybe 15 or 30 minutes. And then they were, they of course were just absolutely terrified, you know, terrified because they didn't know if they were captured, if these things would put them in a zoo someplace or what could possibly happen to them. And then finally they were released and they were both just out of their minds. And um, they put them back on the pier and the thing disappeared. And Kelvin was just standing there with his arms out like in a trance. And Charlie fell down and got back up. And then they started sort of coming too. And you can imagine if that happened to you, what you'd do. I mean, if you called somebody, maybe you could report it now, but everybody would laugh at you now. But back then, they would laugh a lot harder, especially if you were shipyard workers. And so they said, well, we're not going to tell anybody. But Charles had been in the service. He had been in life and death situations. And he thought that after life and death situations that he could probably stand up to being all the harassment he'd have to take. And so he changed his mind and thought, we'll say something. Kelvin, of course, didn't want to because he had his whole life ahead of him and he you know, wanted to get married and wanted to have a family and the whole thing. And he didn't want to just be a freak that everybody pointed at and said, there's a UFO, not know that. So he didn't want to say anything. But Charles decided to. And he... Um, first of all, he stopped at the newspaper and they were closed. Then he stopped at the Air Force Base, Kessler, or he contacted them, I mean. And they said that Project Blue Book is closed, UFOs don't exist, they've proved it and all that or whatever they said. And so he couldn't report there, so they told him to report it to um, the local authorities. So uh, Charles called the police and said, you're not going to believe me, but we were abducted. And apparently, you know, if you were the police person, you'd think this was a nut. But the person that took the call heard Calvin pleading with him, don't say anything, and decided to listen to it. And so they um, they, they went out to get him, and the two people went into the police station and there was an immediate investigation, um, and a real good investigation, because the police separated them and took a report from each one. Then they put them together in a room and interviewed them together, and then the interviewer went out. And um, they didn't know it, but there was a tape recorder hidden in the room. This was because the police didn't want to be caught in a hoax. And, you know, they figured they were joking or, you know. And so they wanted a tape recording of them by themselves without anybody else to see, you know, if they were laughing and saying, oh, we put one over on them and everything. Well, the two men were just absolutely terrified and just out of their minds. And so they discovered that they weren't hoaxing. And so... Um, this was a real good investigation, and it, it showed that the two people, you never quite know, but you know, in this case, they were sincere because of the secret tape. And the secret tape is on the internet now, and it's translated in our book and everything. 
So that that's the basic framework of what happened. Wow. I, you know, I have to say, Irina, it was probably five years, eight years ago, I actually met Calvin Parker, and he was such an unassuming person. He was not accustomed to the attention. He didn't want the attention. So you ask a question. I always ask this as MUFON's chief photo and video analyst and investigating UFO incidents. I always say, what's the end game? What are they looking for out of this? Are they looking for fame, TV show, money? I mean, usually those questions get answered when you do this analysis, right? But with Calvin, I don't know Hickson at all, but with Calvin... I, I never got that impression that he was like that. He was he, when he looked at you, he'd kind of keep his eyes down. He was very uncomfortable with the limelight. Did you find that to be true as well? Well, <laughs> usually a lot of times they say people that report these things want attention. Well, he didn't want attention at all, and he didn't speak about it for like um, forty-eight years almost, and. I don't think he wanted to talk about it even then, but his wife began to say, you know, you need to get this out of your chest and everything, and his health was going down, and he decided to say something. With Charles, um, I talked to his son, and his son said that he um, didn't want money, but he thought this was something important that people should know. And so he, you know, if he... Missed work, he got a little bit of money, but he didn't want, you know, a lot of other people were making money off his thing. And his son said, why are they making money when you're not? And he wanted people to think he was sincere, so he didn't try to make money in a big thing. He wrote a book, and it was a really good book. And with Calvin, um, he was maybe having a few health problems and things, and he went to a funeral, and he used his full name which he hadn't been using a lot because of all the fame which he didn't want and people um, asked him about what was going on they he thought they seemed sincerely interested in him instead of you know degrading him and then his wife started saying well maybe I ought to say something then Philip had a long time hard time finding him but Philip had uh, published republished Charles's book and he wanted to find him so he finally did and between the wife and Philip well he decided to um, write a book which wasn't in you know his type of thing and he did and he wanted to if he wanted to write it just in his own sincere words and if he made English mistakes that was fine and everything so um, he wrote two books and although this happened a long time ago it was a really good investigation back then event and very unique and so it was of high interest now did you want to jump in here well i got to know calvin uh uh quite well and you know he told me that after the incident when he moved away uh he and his family that Wherever they were located, if somebody recognized him, they would quickly up and move. He had the type of job that he was able to to work pretty much anywhere he wanted to. But the fact to me that he was so serious about 
remaining anonymous concerning this incident that he would up and move his family if he was recognized. To me, that, that says a lot uh, about the character of this person and and that this event actually did happen. And it wasn't a hoax, like a lot of people were saying <clears> at the time. Wow. And, and, you know, I didn't know that you had met Calvin Parker um, and that you knew him. This is all interesting. You know, Calvin's been around for a long time and been so quiet about it. And, Irina, you said something when they were paralyzed and they couldn't move anything but their eyes. I also had a similar experience like that. That's why this story resonates with me so much, because I had three nights of terror where something came in and finally shoved something up my sinus that had to be surgically removed, okay? The hospital subsequently lost it less than a week later, okay? But I had that happen, and when they came in, I was also in that paralyzed state, yeah, and there's these hippopompic states are things that we can all, um, you know, relate to. I mean, we, we, I use them to meditate, okay? So, I mean, they're a great place to be, but you're in control, right? So these guys are, you know, Hickson and, and, and Calvin were taken out of control and were manipulated. I felt the same exact thing because when, when they came in and finally did that thing where they shoved something into my sinus, I was completely paralyzed, un- unable to control, and but the the difference was I couldn't even move my eyes. My eyes were frozen, and I couldn't look to the left or the right. I could only look straight ahead. And I, every time I tried to move, I'd get a severe pain. It felt painful. So I understand that process. And like I said, that's why this resonates with me. And I want to ask you, did they report any physical ailments and or pain associated with this event? I mean, what happened at that point? Well, this was in 73, and I think they both thought they had been injected, and you don't know whether they had or not because, um, I mean, there were there's some marks on them. But um, what was odd about it is 73, when you were put out, like for an operation or something, they might inject you, but then you're out, you know, unconscious. Well, in this, they were conscious, and they could move their eyes, but they were paralyzed. And so this was kind of like they have conscious um, anesthesia now, like with fentanyl and things like that, where you're conscious, but, you know, don't have a feeling or might be paralyzed. But this seemed to be strange for 1973. And... um, a lot of people, when they report abductions, they kind of report being like paralyzed or something. But they just say the person waves their hand over their eyes and then they can't feel anything. Well, this they, they were this was strange because they both sort of thought they had been injected, and also uh, later they uh, several scientists talked to them and put out what was called the puncture mark document, where they had marks on them possibly um, from puncture marks from shots, but you don't know. But what interested me was is that this was taken several days afterwards, and they said their eyes were dilated, and the document said, well, their eyes were dilated because of the bright light inside, and two days later, (laughs) well, that made no sense to me at all. 
Um, but it did make sense in another way is that um, if you, if there's a bright light, your eyes constrict and don't dilate. And they said, so that was the opposite of what should happen. But also, if you're given drugs, sometimes your eyes can stay dilated for some time, like several days or something. And so that also made me think maybe there was some kind of drugs involved, which they both thought. But um, you don't know. But anyway, yeah. they were paralyzed and terrified. That's actually a good thought about uh, the, the potential use for drugs, I would have to say, because in the event that their eyes stay dilated, you know, we all go to the eye doctor, they dilate, and for four hours it's uncomfortable, your eyes are dilated, right? But what if what if the room was bright because their eyes were so dilated? It could That's, be. See? Oh. Right? I mean, because when, when you get your eyes dilated in like an eye doctor... <clears throat> slowly but surely the windows get too bright to look through, right? You can't see anything past there. So if I was an alien, and some argue I am, I mean, I'm sorry, but hey, you know. But if I was an alien, maybe I would dilate the eyes for a couple reasons. Maybe to be able to look into the retinas, or maybe because I want to make what's beyond their limit of their, their vision uh, invisible to them, make it hard for them to see you know, put them through this minor discomfort for a period of time just to hide other technology behind me that's, you know, I don't want them to see or something like that. I mean, that's it, far-fetched. But if you think about it, um, alien abduction in general is far-fetched, isn't it? You know, and, and I, I, I don't know if I told you this, Serena, or I know I've told Paul and, and Tim, you'll hear it now, but you probably feel the same way. I think that these visitors are probably scientists who are coming to study life on this planet. Right? That's my thought. And I think that maybe Calvin and, and uh, was it Charles Hickson, right? It's Charles? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think Calvin and Charles were probably unwittingly selected to be the unwitting subjects of a study. And who knows what they did. And so it's possible now why would they use needles if they're so advanced right that's one thing you think couldn't they do something different if they can wave their hand and make someone feel paralysis can they put drugs into the system through us like a a, a, a a surface uh drug that, that is absorbed through the skin um i don't know i don't know the answer to that it would have to it implies that aliens uh, invent needles you know, or something, and, and have invented needles to inject stuff. And that kind of sounds a little bit too human, you know, based on our construction and our architecture with our Venus systems. But you never know. Um, maybe maybe uh, they were onto something, in that, and maybe you're onto something incredible here. Um, so tell me tell me a little bit more about uh, the, the marks on their skin. Was there any photographic evidence, or was it just a long, it was way behind them and they never did it? Well, Phillips an amazing investigator, and he found eventually found the part uh, uh, puncture mark document, but he didn't find anything else. And then later, um, he was also able to find the photog- photography of the marks on the two men. And we had sent him to some um, experts to look at, and one of them said there was like a puncture mark on. Calvin's uh, foot, which is a strange place, but the other um, 
there were marks on the other one, and some of the doctors thought they were just, you know, cuts, but you don't know. So there were marks on both of them. Okay. Uh, the next question I would have, and Tim, go right ahead. I'm sure you've got questions, too. Well, the thing I was going to ask is that uh, uh, your your research for this book shows that um, Calvin and Charles' uh, encounter didn't happen in isolation, that there were other things going on there in that location that very same night. There was a whole lot going on. That, that was one thing that was amazing. One is that a lot of abductions are with one person. The one person doesn't remember anything. And, you know, maybe years later something will come up and they'll get it or something. But in this case, it was two people. She so had two witnesses, two witnesses that had very different uh, behavior. One of them would talk about it, one of them wouldn't. And um, they both remembered it consciously. Uh, they were conscious of going into the object, coming out, and being in there, but am I supposed to stop talking? Um, okay. <laughs> they were conscious of going in and coming out and being in there, and you don't know if there was any unconscious part or not, because it seemed like they might have thought they were in there longer than what they actually remembered happening. But um, this was really good to start with because you had and then you had an instant investigation right then right you know within minutes or hours after it happened which is really unusual but then there were uh, a lot of other observers and um at that night there were the police said there were reports of 50 people reporting that they saw something odd Plus, there were other people on the police station. And so this was um, really unusual. It was, um, in a, the pier was out in the river, but there was a freeway, Route 90, going north of it, a train vessel um, going south of it, and people around, which was also strange. And the... Um, the debunkers said, well, you know, why didn't anybody else see it? Well, other people did, and there were reports, but the actual reports got lost in Hurricane Katrina. But we're finding a lot of witnesses, and we're not, <clears throat> I mean, the witnesses are just popping up and saying, oh, we saw it, and for the attention. we Philip went to a lot of work finding other witnesses. And, for example, two other witnesses were the Blair family, and we found them because uh, when Charles finally started, I mean, when Calvin finally started talking about it, well, they put him on YouTube, and somebody just made a comment on YouTube, my parents saw that. <laughs> it's pretty funny that somebody saw an abduction. And so, anyway, Philip contacted them and gave the name to me, and um, the name of the parents. And they were the first people that I contacted. And I called and talked talk first of all to the husband, who was a skeptic. And he said something about hearing a big splash and something about a blimp. And then I talked to his wife. 
and she said that they were on the other side of the um, river, and they saw something going on, but they didn't know what it was. And then the next day they heard about the abduction, and they figured that that's what they saw because they were in the right location. Well, what she said was that they were waiting for the man's supervisor to come, and they were going to get on a ship and walk down the pier going toward where the abduction was on the other side of the river. And um, the supervisor's late, and this was back in 73 when they didn't have cell phones or anything like that. And so they were waiting. And she said her husband went to sleep, and they saw she saw this thing flying around, and she thought it was an airplane. And she said it didn't go anywhere. It just kept flying around. And she couldn't understand it, and she kept saying, well, she thought the pilots were lost or the pilots were looking for something. And then she said around 9 o'clock that her husband decided to walk down to the ship and put his clothes in the ship. And so he was walking along the pier, and she was walking along behind him, and something flopped up on the pier right in front of her. And she couldn't figure out what it was. It looked just like a man, and it went back down. And then she waited for... Um, um, she waited for um, the, get the person to come back up and breathe, and nothing, nobody came up and breathed. And so she, she was very nervous about this, and they walked on down to the, um, it was about 9 o'clock, and they walked on down to the ship. And then for some reason, she didn't come back until 12, and she was terrified, and she ran back down the pier and jumped in the car and left. Well, she was very, very, very emotional about the um, the thing that flopped up on the pier. And um, we talked and wrote for quite a while. And you could just tell she had all kinds of emotion, but she didn't have a thought. She didn't know why she had so much emotion. And then several years later, her husband became very ill and... He was going to die later, unfortunately. And right before he went on the ventilator, and on the ventilator you can't talk. And right before he went on the ventilator, he said that he had been in contact with these, whatever you'd call them, aliens or whatever they were. And he had been in contact for some time. And that um, he had made... And he described the abduction, too, in detail, such as he called one of the abductors a doctor. And he said when they, they swam across the river back toward wherever the abduction was, and he said he kept his eye on it, his right eye, and called, and called that man the doctor, or that being the doctor. And so he had details on this. And he said he had made some kind of a pact with him to not injure his wife. And she was, you know very, very, very surprised that here this thing had happened to him. They'd been abducted, and um, she didn't remember anything about it then. And he had known it all along, but he had always been a skeptic and told her not to talk about it. So anyway, um, then they called Philip, and... Um, Jerry, the husband, talked to him, and she filmed the whole thing and everything for information. And so these two people were there, 
and they not only saw the abduction, but they might have been abducted themselves. So that this was really, really, really strange because you might have had two abductions by the same object at the same time, which I don't think has been reported before. Wow. So you're so what we're learning today and, and Tim, I think that you, you might share this too, is uh if you don't know this already, I didn't know this, but there were more than one more than two witnesses. There were several other people that reported this of uh, this weird sighting that night as well. Did they all report a blue light? No, um there were difference in what they reported, but this was like you know, 50 years ago, too. And, you know, you wouldn't remember exactly the same thing. But they, uh, a number of people at that time, that night, had reported something odd. And then we slowly began finding other people. And there were a lot of interesting events. There were several people that may have been in the sheriff's office at the same time and seen it. And we had a hard time tracking them down, but most of them remembered it. And, for example, there was one called, um, I think it was Rusty Anderson, who uh, the debunker said, well, why didn't anybody on the freeway see it? Well, he said he was on the freeway and saw this thing, and it looked odd. And it was kind of low, and there was no place for an airplane to land there, so he couldn't figure out what it was doing. And he reported that. Then he said the next day he went to see his aunt. His aunt was lived someplace where she could see over the river, and that she'd seen something odd too. And then somebody else had called in to report that they had had a sighting, and it turned out that uh, she was a cousin of uh, Rusty Anderson. So three people in the same family had seen something. Wow. There were quite a few other, I think I counted about 50 other people that we've contacted now that um, saw something at the same night. And the sheriff's office had said there were, you know, around 50 people that had, and more that had seen something odd then. And, you know, I want to mention too, I'm sorry, Tim, I'll get to you in a second. I want to mention to you real fast that, you know, when people think about the debunking part where they say, hey, why didn't they see it from the highway? Well, let's be clear. You're on a freeway, and unless that thing is right in front of you, you're not going to look over there while you're driving at 70 miles an hour. Back in the 70s, you probably had 75-mile-an-hour speed limits. You're not going to be looking like, hey, look over there. You're not doing that. okay? You're going to be focused on driving. So actually, it's very rare that people notice things from their cars unless it's right in front of them or a passenger is looking around and sees it. Okay, so it's actually quite rare. So that actually, I did not find that to be a disturbing finding at all. I think that's actually normal. Tim, you had something you, you wanted to add, I'm sure. Well, one of the interesting things is that um, the, the the two men, after their experience, the first thing that they thought to do was to contact the local Air Force base, and you know they were just immediately rebuffed. However, the Air Force got very interested and what was going on just, you know, gosh, I mean, I think maybe as soon as the next day or at least, the you know, a couple of days afterwards. Irene, do you think this is because of all the other reports that started to uh, uh, flow in? You said that there were a number of people who 
uh, that same night made reports to the uh, a police station. Yeah, I would think so. But um, one thing was is that they were worried about contamination, and uh, Calvin especially. He had, I mean, it'd been nice if he had saved his clothes because we could analyze them now. But he didn't, so he took all his clothes off and put them in a bag and tossed them. And then he took a shower, and I think he poured Clorox or something on him, uh, you know, because he was afraid of contamination. Well, then he complained. He went to the Singing River Hospital, first of all, which was kind of a small thing, and worried about contamination. So the next day they took him to, they took both of them to, was worried about radiation for one thing. They took both of them to um, Kessler Air Force Base, which is what where they had first contacted. And because they could test for radiation, there wasn't any radiation, but they had a meeting there. And there's a transcript of the meeting in our book that who's there, and there were big shots like colonels and things um, and doctors and things talking to them. And they talked to him for some time and questioned him and everything. And that's in the book in detail about what happened at Kessler Air Force Base, which had, first of all, said, forget about it. So, um, but they took him in because they were worried about radiation instead of because Kessler suddenly got an interest in it, I think. <laughs> but they were interested, yeah. That's... uh that's par for the course, isn't it? It seems like they're interested after the fact, and then nobody go near that site. No, no, you can't go there now. But wait, that's where it happened. I was there. I was part of this, you know. So I understand the the reticence to uh, allow people in once they take over. Man, it's it. You're 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 done. You're as J- John Q. Public. You're out of the loop, and you cannot come in here, and you can't know anything, right? So that's what ends up happening. Now, Charlie and Calvin were. Uh, abducted, right? They were both taken. Were there reports of anybody else being abducted that night that ever came in, or was that still an unknown, or is that factually known to be not true? Just those two. Well, as I mentioned, the Blair family, Jerry and Maria Blair reported an abduction, and they were on the opposite side of the river, which I just mentioned. Um, There were some other things that sounded abduction-like. For example, there were, um, I think his name was Joey Nelson. He and uh, another person that was sort of a famous person and somebody else were driving, um, they were west of Pascagoula. I think they were near Mobile. Or, they were going to um, uh, New Orleans. I forget where they were. But that same night, that same time, they were driving in a car and they said he said that something came over the car, something big, and then a little thing came down right in front of the windshield, and it was kind of like clicking and flashing, like it was taking pictures of them or something. And then they this they were going to the the famous person was a billiard player, I think, and they were going to the tournament. But after this happened, it was like they were in a trance, and then. Um, the thing flew away, and they asked each other what happened. And they both seemed—they all seemed confused. And instead of going to where they were going, they turned around, and came back, and it was about a month before they went back to where they 
had been going. And they described the event when this thing was in front of them. It's like being paralyzed and being in a trance. And that happened the same time as the abduction. You know, it was not in the same place or anything else, but it was strange because um, it was like they were being abducted, although they didn't get taken up into a UFO or anything. It was like something mental was happening to them at the same time as it was happening to um, Charlie and Calvin. And there were several other things like that that made me wonder, what is an abduction and does it just take place if you're on board a ship or does it whatever, or if it takes place mentally or what? Yeah, I mean, there's abduction scenarios, right, where uh, people think they may have been abducted, and the only evidence for it is they've lost time. Um, I have to go back to an event that happened to me when I was a kid. I lost hours of time on a field trip from school. I was went on the field trip. I remember getting off the bus, and then all of a sudden I remember getting on the bus. I don't remember anything for the many hours where we were at this this remote pond. So, and that night I had to be taken to the hospital because I had these seizures from this, okay? So, um, was there any missing time that was noted or commented on in the intervening years after the event? Well, with the Blair family, Maria, um, it appeared to me there was missing time because when she saw this thing flop up on the pier and went down to the ship, it was around 9 o'clock, and then she seemed to come back at, around 12 and you didn't know what she didn't seem to be able to account for what happened that's when her husband said they'd been abducted but she didn't have a remembrance of it consciously later she was under hypnosis and it came out a little bit later but yeah there's missing time but sometimes I wonder if they can't just abduct your mind um, (laughs) read out your mind some way and not even leave a trace of it or leave a little trace of it well think about it and and this you know as well um certain types of anesthesia you go in for a major surgery when you go into general anesthesia you can be talking to the doctors right up until they give you what they call the cocktails right and you start to go drift off but when you wake up you have no memory of that preceding time where you were talking to the doctors. I've had several surgeries where the doctor said, oh, you were very chatty right up until you went out. I said, I don't remember any of that. And they said, yeah, you probably will never remember that, (laughs) right? Because anesthesia can do that. So the human being has multiple ways to have their memory removed. Uh, That's a chemical removal. And whether they're using chemical or some other um, mechanism is very interesting to me. So I don't, I don't say, oh, missing time, huh? Yeah, right. I'll never do that because I know that you can lose minutes and hours beforehand uh, depending on the technique used, right? So we know we can do it with anesthesia. So I'm sure that there's ways that an advanced race that might be a 1,000 or 5,000 years ahead of us could probably have figured out long ago. Well, I've heard people say that um, they would be in their normal life and suddenly it was like time stopped, and everybody around them just stopped. And then they had some kind of abduction experience and came back. And it was like it was just your life, you know, that you're seeing everything is sort of a recording or virtual reality, and they just stop it and abduct you and put you back down. 
so <laughs> yes. Interesting. Oh, okay. I wanted to give Mar- uh, Irina a chance to talk about where people can get the book and find out more about her. Okay. Um, our book is Beyond Reasonable Doubt. It's on... Wow. I like uh, that. Well, it is Beyond Reasonable Doubt, actually. Um, he named it because um, of court cases where if you... they if you can't necessarily absolutely prove something, but you can prove something beyond reasonable doubt. Well, it appeared this was because there were so many other witnesses. It's on Amazon, and it's also on Flying Disc Press. Um, we have some... Um, we have several different copies, a hard copy and a soft copy and everything else that are very reasonably priced. And we've got huge amounts of research. We've got around 50 other witnesses and all kinds of um, illustrations, every illustration you could think of, plus all kinds of documents. Wow. And the pictures and names of the other witnesses and uh, just a whole lot of information to document it. Wow, even you're an 18-inch person, or that's a massive book. That looks really good. It's a very massive book. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Mark and Tim, what about your books? Oh, well, uh, mine is on Amazon. It's called The Populated Universe, and it's my uh, discussion of how life on Earth uh, is probably uh, the rule, not the exception as far as life in the universe, okay, because uh, of carbon and all the other atomic elements that make us up. Uh, Tim, what about you? Well, you can find all of my books on Amazon.com uh, and uh, uh, at your uh, favorite local bookstores, which I always say, please patronize your favorite local bookstore. Uh, my most recent is called Mimics the Others Among Us, and uh, Paul has a uh, an excellent chapter in this book, so I encourage everyone to rush right out and uh, get a copy today. Makes a great Christmas present. <laughs> I, can't, I can't go right now, though. <laughs> hey, go ahead. Great discussion. Please continue. Okay. Um, I I figure we have a couple minutes left before we have to go to announcements, Paul, so maybe we can ask Irina a few more questions. Um, I was actually curious, in the end, okay, how many total people, you said about 50, were witness to this potential event? And number two, that creature that flopped up on the dock i want to wish i could have gone back in time and and with a uh, you know, like a, a mass spectrometer or something to try and figure out what substances might have been on that dock after that after that thing left because that would have been very interesting to find out and that would have been sort of a linchpin in the case if we had that ability ability back then well it would have been a nice linchpin uh like uh Betty Hill, she kept her dress after their, you know, abduction. And they had analyzed many, many years later, and back in 73, you know, whoever heard of anything like that. But if they had saved their clothes and things, there might have been an analysis later. But unfortunately, (laughs) nobody ever heard of anything like that back then, and they didn't. So it would be nice to find something, but I don't think anybody would. Wow. I I don't know. I mean, I wish that we had that technology back then, uh, but 
again, in the 70s, you know, people have to remember we didn't have the cell phones. We didn't have the ways to communicate instantly. We didn't have the Internet, okay? We just had word of mouth. We had telephones that were corded and hanging on the wall. That's how you communicated. So if you're out fishing, it's going to be hours before you will tell anybody what happened, even if you rush back because you got to get off the river, pull in the boat, put it back in a truck or whatever, get in a truck, race to a pay phone, <laughs> and make a phone call if you have a quarter or a dime. <laughs> you know, so uh, and people have to remember that the speed of and, and transfer of data was a lot slower back then. So an alien species that would visit us would probably have a field day knowing full well that they could do anything to us and it would be hours and hours before anybody got hot on their trail. Well, the uh, government has been denying that UFOs exist up until 2017 when it just slightly said, well, maybe something exists. But they're just saying, you know, it has to be off in the distance. It has to be, you know. Uh, through a particular kind of radar or something else that doesn't exist. Nothing close, nothing can come close and anything like that. So, you know, there's just a little bit of opening there. But, um, that's because they don't have anything definite in science, but they do have the observations and you can study the observations statistically and get information from them. I mean, even if you don't know how it works. And so, you know, I I didn't think that was very intelligent for them to say, well, we're the most intelligent uh, things in the universe and nothing else exists. We haven't gone to the universe and we don't know. And so they always say, scientists say this. Well, huh. yeah, that's correct. <laughs> yeah. Whenever they say those generic terms like studies have been done, what studies where by whom? I always ask. Okay, and they say, scientists say, what scientists where? What universities, what affiliations, what what scientists? Come on. And and many times they'll it breaks down to, well, I saw it on a YouTube video. <laughs> right? That's the YouTube generation. Now one one last question for you, Arena, which I has puzzled me and this is this actually is Paul's question that he wrote earlier and it actually intrigued me and I've been waiting to ask. This is something that is part and parcel hand in hand with the abduction phenomenon why is it that when alien life and creatures abduct humans that none of their viruses or potential illnesses are transmitted to humans is it the same reason perhaps and i guess this is sort of a rhetorical question is it the same reason perhaps that dogs don't catch the common cold that humans get i mean is it that difference in the species um what what is your opinion of that because Obviously, alien life isn't without illness. They certainly get sick. I mean, uh, just just look at War of the Worlds. I'm just kidding. Um, but um, in in the case of alien life, right? I mean, they will have viruses. They will have diseases. How do they stay clear of transmitting them to us? Maybe their technology prevents it. I don't know. What are your thoughts? We should have better technology of exploring like we're sending things to mars and our bacteria might you know wipe out any life on mars because it may be small and scarce and hard to find but um so far as aliens or whatever they are they may be vastly different from us 
and I mean, like we're we're basically a chemical reaction, and you know, something advanced might just look at us and say, "Well, that's a chemical, so what?" And you know, there may be energy beings or black energy beings and all kinds of things that aren't anything like us, and we wouldn't ha- they wouldn't have to worry about contaminating us because they'd be so different. But even if they weren't different, they could probably, you know, figure out some way to sterilize things so that um, we're not getting their virus. And some people think we are getting their viruses, but the viruses are coming in from space and things. Mm. And so you don't know for sure. But, um, like, we have particular DNA and our viruses have particular DNA and stuff like that that, um, you know, are compatible with us. And they may be totally different, or they may be really good at sterilizing everything, or they may be just totally different from us. Just give us, uh, you know, appearances rather than actually being here. Yeah, yeah, wow. Well, this is really great, Irina. Thank you so much for just talking to us about your book. Um, I would like to to uh, let everybody know that over the next few weeks, Paul and Ben are going to uh, work with Reverend Michael Carter from Ancient Aliens on a very special podcast uh, that will reveal new information that he's uncovered uh, about ancient aliens. And this will be a, a strictly video presentation. It will be posted on the Behind the Paranormal YouTube channel, and there will be more information to come about that. Visit our show's website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find nearly 1,200 hours of our regular shows and special broadcasts since 2008 from CBS Radio, Achieve Radio, and here on WOON, AM, and FM. Also, hear many of these broadcasts on the major podcast platforms, including iTunes, Apple Podcasts, and YouTube. So what's going on next week, Mark? Well, first I just want to thank Irina again for being here. That, that was wonderful visiting with you. Hope to see you again on the on the uh, the uh, convention circuit. Uh, but next week on November 26th, the legendary Nick Redfern, uh, who was just in Paul's living room actually uh, the other day, from what I'm told, he, he will be on to talk about Mothman in depth, including some new cases. Um, and yeah, that was that was funny. That is erupt. No, no. I was uh, tearing my hair out how to get him on the show. And it's not like he doesn't know <laughs> me. He wrote the forward for my last book. And then he comes away. He lives in Texas. And he was in Rhode Island uh, to speak. So there he was. And I nailed him. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's so, great, Paul. Uh, and also, fantastic job, everybody today thank you so much well wonderful i'd like to actually leave you guys with a quote and it comes from my favorite astronomer carl sagan and i'll try and say it like him somewhere something incredible is waiting to be known that's the quote from carl sagan i'm mark d'antonio i'm tim swartz i'm paul ito and we have a little time i'm afraid but thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey We'll see you next time on Behind the Paranormal, where I may use my new synthetic but very creepy voice. (laughs) I want to hear this. (laughs) Have a great week, folks. (laughs) I want to hear this. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now.
for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. There is nothing like the beauty of a little holiday tree to liven up the holidays. Join us at the St. Anne Arts and Cultural Center for its 